Wednesday at 8 p.m. Hey! We are at listening to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio, 88.7 WPSC, the only radio station at William Patterson, the University in Wayne, New Jersey, 0747. Oh, the number one college radio station in America and possibly intergalactically. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp, along with your doctor, Professor Esteban. Marconi. It is great to be here. Aren't you happy, Marconi? Yes. Nashville, Tennessee. Wonderful. And we're seeing so much of it over these last four or five days. Because we are in a room in the bowels of Nashville. That's right. With yes. fluorescent lighting. Fluorescent lighting the only kind of lighting I like. That's right. And except for the sunshine, which is out there. There's, there is some sunshine outside. We heard. So we, I heard. Yeah. <laughs> We've not seen enough of it. And, of course, you heard a voice, and that is the voice of Peter Jenner, <coughs> who is a legend in the music business. And we're going to get into Peter in just a moment. So thank you, Peter. Let's just clap yes. for you right off the thank bat. You, thank you, man. Thank you. And uh, the last clap you heard was from Zach Smith, who is the student who was able to finagle Peter and convince him to actually do this. So, Zach Smith, thank you very yes. much for thank you. being here. Thank you. And a highlight of your life was Peter Jenner just clapped for you. Yes, it was. So that was actually pretty cool. So uh, cool. We're, we're kind of starstruck. You don't believe it. No, you don't, don't believe it, but no, it, it's I happened. I do not believe it. It, it is happening, and because um, this is all about music, this music is one one more. Yep. So talking to you is like talking to like uh, the gold standard yeah. of the music business. It's like so, talking to history. What? Like talking to history. Right. Yeah. Yes. We're we're. This is going. This is historical right now because we right. got to talk to um, Carl Palmer yesterday, oh, yes. and that was another one. You know, yeah. talking to somebody, and we. It was just amazing, you know, some of the stuff we were talking about and, and listening to. So that's really cool. So um, you'll get to ask a question, do your thing in a second. We want to remind our listeners to go to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for our newsletter, listen to our stuff, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. And, of course, you'll listen to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Give big thanks to the Music Biz Association for giving us this space mm-hmm. in Nashville. We appreciate that. Thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management. With artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, Kiss, St. Vincent, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you are ready. And thanks to Rob Fusari. Have you ever heard the song Bootalicious? No. No, Bootalicious by Destiny's Child. Have you heard of Paparazzi by Lady Gaga? Uh, No. Okay. I mean, I know the names. And that's all you need to know. Yeah. So um, Rob Fusari is a friend and uh, an alum of our program, and he's written those songs. Oh, and, very and good. So, so he's done very well, and so he's been uh, nice enough, he and our friend Aaron Van Dyne, who's the business manager for Kiss Dave Matthews, those Charlie Puth, um, they donated some money to us in order to bring students like Zach here. So, Excellent. Yeah, so it's very cool. Excellent. Amazing experience for Zach to be here and talk to you. In yeah. fact, I don't want to talk anymore. Zach, why don't you do this thing All right. right now and tell Peter how it goes. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, Peter's a graduate of University of Cambridge. He's managed several bands, including Pink Floyd, The Clash, T-Rex, and Roy Harper. Uh, he's been very vocal in his opinions when it comes to copyright law. Uh, he's responsible for Black Hill Enterprises, and he's one of the creators of the Hyde Park Concerts. Hmm. Very good. Did you take any classes uh, while you were at Cambridge that helped you prepare for the music industry? Not directly. Psychology. Not directly, no, but indirectly, uh, a lot probably, because I um, did statistics and economics and also sociology, but the important thing that I did was uh, economics and statistics, and I think it gave me a a thing which I haven't lost, which is that sort of ability to think about things uh, as economic structures. So... 
Um, now that I do a bit of teaching, it's very handy to pass on to students to think in a, a sort of an economic way. And I don't mean like those sort of people who, uh, you know, the people who do all these long equations, but thinking about, you know, supply and demand and, um, and what that means and costs and hidden costs and transaction costs and uh, liquidity and uh, the, uh, was it something of demand, the, uh, when you say the, the uh, oh God, it's gone for me. But the one where you, if you, if you, if you put the price up by 10%, do your sales go down by 10% or not? It's the, that's the, uh, something of demand, what's it? My brain has gone, <laughs> but supply that's it. Supply and He's got an MBA. No, so uh, not supply yeah. and demand, it's the yeah. elasticity of demand. Uh, elasticity. elasticity of demand is right. very yeah. important. Elasticity of demand because that's about um, thinking, and I find I've used that through the years a lot when thinking about how to price things. You know, what should we charge for a gig? What should we charge the public? You know, if we put a, a price, a higher price, are we going to get a bigger revenue or are we going to get a smaller revenue? And also then thinking about, well, what do I want from the gig? Do I want people there so that more people see us or do we want to make, think about it purely in terms of money? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and elasticity of demand is very, you know, you maybe put the price down because you want to sell a lot of extra tickets and it's a big room and you want to try and make sure it sells out. Or, you know, do you want to increase the gross? You have a small room, you put the price up because you know you're going to sell the t tickets because there's going to be enough people who are going to want to pay whatever it is that you want them to pay within reason. So mm -hmm. that, in that sense, economics has been always been very helpful. And statistics, just simply the numbers and, 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 and a sort of willingness to think about numbers and so on. Would that be case by case when you would be thinking about do we want to sell more tickets and, uh, or do, and charge a lower price or charge a higher price just to get a little bit more revenue? Would that be gig by gig or band by <coughs> band depending upon where Both. the band is? Yeah. Both and also in terms of the PR aspect so that when working with <laughs> someone like uh, Billy Bragg, you know, it was clearly, it was certainly in the earlier days, it was very important that we weren't seen to be charging a lot of money because he was Mr. Sort of, you know, man of the people. So we wanted to feel that the price should be, uh, it should be economic. People should be able to afford to come. The young people should be able to afford to come to the shows. And that was fine. We never were involved in sort of just taking the absolute maximum money. But, you know, sometimes, you know, you have a small venue and you've got a tour, you've got to balance the books on the tour and, you know, um, mm -hmm. If you charge an extra couple of dollars and it's a couple of hundred people, maybe that's gonna help that extra 500 bucks or something is gonna be just what you need to make that gig viable in, in the context of the whole tour, the whole tour sort of economics. And then a lot goes into it then, into that decision then. You know, I mean, because you're taking into account different variables. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. uh, and they don't actually, they don't count, they don't sort of, they don't, you can't add and supply them. Mm -hmm. You've got to start to make a balance as to where you want to go. And that's also very important when you're talking to your agent or to the promoter as to what they think and, and, and what you want from, from the show. You know, is it a new market? Is it somewhere where you always do well? So we know we can do that. But mm -hmm. hey, it's a big venue and so we can not put the price up because we know there's going to be more people there anyway because it's a bigger venue. So it's, it's about... <coughs> That elasticity of demand is also about the perception of the artist for the public, 
especially if you're a political artist like Billy Bragg was, that clearly, you know, to be charging a, a, a very high price, mm. ticket price, would be very bad for his image. So it's all these sort of things you have to sort of blend into your discussion and into your argument. Mm -hmm. Do you have to know the agent well? I'm sure you've dealt with many different agents. Do you have to be able to read them and, and determine, are they really going just for their 10% or are they sometimes thinking longer term about you and the artist? Is that, I'm sure that's no, by case by case. Well, oh, yes, absolutely. But on the whole, you, you, you want to have <coughs> agents who have, um, who, who have the same basic view as the artist who has the same basic view as the manager and that, that we should as well all be a team mm -hmm. and, and um, it's very important that the agent should know what you want and it's very important for the manager to know what the artist wants because at the end of the day it's the artist and that's always one of those things with like uh, why uh, for instance uh, it never went that long with Mark Boland because I always felt that he he wasn't he was he didn't want what he appeared to be mm. you know he came on as a very when i was working with him he was an acoustic artist and he was very hippie and he was very you know sitting cross-legged and everything and he was sort of very folky and so that that was you know the artist that he was and that was the sort of view that we had of him and then as 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 he left uh, and um uh, and i can tell you that story if you want later on as to why he left but when he left he then went electric and started becoming a rock god and I was so taken aback because I realized that that perhaps that was always what he'd wanted mm. and that you know that that mm. whether he was pretending to be um, a, a sort of hippie folky because that was the time the, that was the feeling of the times or whether he was um, just a hypocrite or whether he changed his mind I never really could work out what he wants so that's a very important thing I think for a manager is to know what the artist really wants do they want to make great music uh, is that what's really important do they want to um, <coughs> have a, make lots of money do they want to be respected do they want to be political with a small p you know what is it that they want to do with their, their career because artists are more than just you know, just the noise. The noise they make on record is the noise they make on record. Mm -hmm. And if they want to have a hit, do they want to have a hit because they want to get their message over or do they want to be ha to have a hit because they want to make more money? Um, you know, uh, do they want to have a hit because they want to have more girls? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, what what's your motivation? Trying to find and get to the motivation of an artist is always really very difficult. <coughs> You never really know, but you have to try and think and feel it. Um, and where I've done it um, well, the band's done well, and when I haven't done it so well, it hasn't worked so well in, in, in career terms. I mean, so it's strange how things change with people. You know, the, 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 you know, the Clash, for instance. I never felt that, all right, <clears throat> I could never quite work out how far they really were, you know, the you know, down with the kids, um, and how far they were just another band wanting to become pop stars and make lots of money. Uh, and they were never honest about it. And that's what I didn't like, was that they weren't honest about it. You couldn't get a real feel. You feel. It's much easier as a manager to deal with people who are fairly rational 
and who, as it were, say it as they mean it. But people who, as it were, are talking in code, it becomes very difficult to disentangle the code. <laughs> do you want to be a, a star? Or do you want to have make great music? Do you want to have a hit? Or do you want to make music which is respected and people say what great music it is? These are rather different yeah. things. You know, Do you want to become a hit with the girls? Or do you want to become a hit with the boys? What is it that you really want from what you're doing? Or are you just doing it because that's what's happened. And, and as a manager, when you get that wrong, it becomes very difficult. Well, it's interesting because you used the word psychology right. earlier, and you, you just gave two examples of two artists, Mark Berlin and The Clash. Is it they didn't, you weren't sure, and it, I guess I can't just ask you what you just said, ask these questions, and they're, do they just not know? Did they not know? Did they? <coughs> I think they're, they're on the whole, people will tell you what they, what they think you want well, to hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. or what they've been telling other people. They, they're not going to tell you what they really think necessarily. Mm -hmm. you, know, um, you know, if you have a, you meet a pretty girl, you know, and you say, oh, you're so beautiful. You, you've got such a wonderful temperament. You're really such a lovely person. I really <laughs> like what you say. But all you want to do is to make love to them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that sort of yeah. ambiguity. I mean, it's very human. We do that a lot. We, yeah. we, we, we appear to be something, whereas in fact, we're not actually what we appear to be, you know. Right. But that would be, what you were describing in the last five minutes is I'm sure the criteria you try to use for picking an, an act you're going to manage in terms of how genuine are they to you so that we, we can get rid of the Well, it's a question of how right far there. they can convince you. In a some sense, if what they want is for you to manage them and turn them into a big act, yeah. a big star, right. they might have a, a strategy that to do that with this particular manager, your best move is to do that uh, and to appear as that. Right. And certainly in, in, in the 60s with, with people like Bolan and, and, and the Floyd, it was all about being underground and groovy. I, I mean, Pink Floyd <coughs> was one of the earliest ones to have extravaganza staging and and so on. Were you in, involved at that that time? Well, I, I we set we helped set the agenda. Yes, yeah. I mean uh, when we, the original <coughs> the original sort of uh, PR thing that we sent out about the Floyd was we referred to them as a uh, as a a, um, a a mixed media show. And that it was to sort of simulate a, a psychedelic experience, so mm -hmm. that you would the music, the, the music and the, the the images that we use, or the, this lighting, would take you into a new world and expand your expand your horizons, uh -huh. expand your consciousness. Uh -huh. You know, it was like a simulated drug experience. Yeah, yeah. That was the sort of vibe. Uh -huh. And uh, there's another retro thing. <laughs> um, and uh, th that, in a sense, was something that we developed with them and interesting that 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 early the early press things was written by a guy called Jonathan Fenby who then went on ultimately to become a correspondent in Vietnam and to uh, be yeah. the, the editor of a, a, a newspaper in London the Observer and uh, yeah. written many books since and is still a good friend of ours but anyway I deviate but this sort of thing of what you want to how you want to present yourself I mean I think that we you know, we had a lot to do with that because we were coming from 
an environment with the Floyd, which was was a very alternative underground, have another joint, you know, um, international times. There was a lot of underground. It was very underground. It was like the uh, something similar to what was happening with the, um, you know, in San Francisco at the time, though yeah. we didn't know it. Yeah. No connection really with San Francisco, but we'd read about it in the music papers, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and they were considered. I remember reading when I was first started reading about the history of rock and, and so on. They were considered by some one of the loudest bands in the world. Yes, the they world. were. I mean, y you you wouldn't consider them loud now I if you know, heard right? what they. I mean, nothing. I mean, what was extraordinary also was the PAs. Yeah. You couldn't hear lyrics <laughs> right. because the PAs weren't very powerful, especially yeah. in England, yeah. and the monitors were very poor. Yeah. So the bands would really always had a very hard time listening to themselves. And, uh, and so <clears throat> back in the earliest days, what was very important were your singles because those are the tracks that people knew. If they came to see you, they saw you. Yeah. you know, you'd get booked because you'd had a chart record and you know, the, the kids would come would know the song. So in a sense, they didn't yeah, have to hear the lyrics because they knew it. Yeah. They knew what the song was meant to be. Right. In a sense, they were just come to see the, to, to see the, see the, the physical manifestation yeah. and, and to be there as, you know, as an audience, it being underground and hip, right. you know. And, and I think that's always very important to remember that the thing of going to a, a gig, it's about more than just the, not what I call the noise. In the same way the record's about more than just the noise, it's about the uh, the whole ambience surrounding it, whether mm -hmm. it's the sort of the philosophical, the fashion and so on, because the Floyd was all about the, un when it started, it was all about the, the London underground, and yeah. that was about what you wore, uh, what you did with your hair, you don't have hair like yours, um, and not like yours, um, and uh, you know, so it would be about your hair, it'd be about whether you smoked dope or you sure. drank beer, it would be about whether you, you know, had a bell around your neck or whether you, what sort of coat you wore and, and all these sort of things. There was a whole yeah. sort of things which went with being a hippie. So it was a lifestyle thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it was so powerful because it was, as it were, the Floyd were the sort of the, um, focus of a lifestyle revolution which was going on. It was a bit like what punk did later on or yeah, what some of the yeah. hip hop was doing. I mean, it, it was changing the uh, uh, the position of the, young, of the young people. And it was important to realize the time. Uh, the time we were talking about when I started the Floyd was in 66. Mm -hmm. And that was only 20 years after the end of the war. And we'd all been, you know, I was only 23. Um, we were all, the band were a bit younger than me. They would have been around 20, 21. Uh, we'd been brought up during the post-war period where there was a lot of shortages. Mm -hmm. And we came out of a period when young people dressed like their parents. And, yeah. you know, and had the attitudes of their parents. So that, you know, if, if dad wore a suit, you can see that when you see, look, some of the pictures of like, Frank Sinatra, you know, in the 40s, he was yeah. dressed like his parents. Right. You know, the youngsters wanted to look like th their parents right. um, or the styles of their, of, of, of their parents' generation. And the, 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 the period around then, it was post Elvis and so on, was that when it started to be uh, about 
expressing your difference from your parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you, what you wore, you know, so that's where we had, you had long hair. Yeah. You know, because everybody had short hair, so you had long hair. Yeah. People wore hats, so you didn't wear hats. Right. You know, people wore suits, so you didn't wear suits. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you wouldn't wear jeans going to work, so you wore jeans going yeah. to work. Right. You know, so it was a sort of, and, and also sort of the sort of thick, the sort of food that you ate, there'd be more foreign food. You know, mm -hmm. be, there'd be mm -hmm. Italian food and an awareness of Italian food and French food, whereas your parents' generation won't ate English food. Right. You know, so it was a very fundamental sort of time period of great change. And swift, right? Because if you look, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you look at 1964, look at pictures of the Beatles when they first land yeah. in America. Even though back then their hair was considered long because it wasn't yeah. fuzz, but yeah. there was that was nothing compared to two years '66 when you're talking yeah. about yeah. when all you know John is wearing facial hair and has the the, yeah. the sideburns and the hair is longer, yeah. 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 not not '67 '68 when it's long, really long, when it's crazy long. But they were really starting just within two years how the fashion yeah. and how everything really changed. It was like and a how, roller coaster, and, and how they started wearing suits. Mm -hmm. Right, which were quite radical, but I mean that also was interesting because the suits were very Italian suits, yeah. so they weren't the sort of suits that their parents would have worn. Yeah. So there were short jackets and things like that, whereas yeah. their parents would have worn lo long jackets, you know, right. tight was, trousers rather than baggy trousers. And it was Brian Epstein who's the one who found the suits, who was someone <coughs> who was more of an upper class, and he was only 24, 20, 25, yeah, he was 26. Young. Yeah. I mean, he, but he, I think he was just more aware of clothing. I mean, he was mm -hmm. gay. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. know if that was why, but he, he would have been more right. conscious of, right. of the clothing and what people looked like. And yeah. I think he certainly would have had a lot to do with how they dressed. Were you influenced because he died in August of 67. So in 66, he's still yeah. a, big, a big deal, especially in the well, UK. Well, the Beatles were very important. Right. And it's interesting how it changed, because when I was at, at university, the Beatles came and did a show at Cambridge, and I didn't want to go to it. I was into jazz, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was much cooler. They were pop stars. There was pop things, and that yeah. was uncool. Right. But then as we became more involved in things and, and, and you know, uh, involved with the, with the band later on, uh, it became a, one of the reasons perhaps why I could become a, a manager and became a manager was that a British band could make, could become a worldwide band. And that hadn't happened before. So you had the Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks and some of those earlier bands <laughs> became very big. So you could see that you could build a business. So me as an economist, back to your question about the economist, mm -hmm. me as, a, as an economist could see that it was a viable career choice, at least in the short run, that there was a possibility. Whereas had I been doing it 10 years earlier, it wouldn't have been a viable possibility. Yeah, right. There would have, it, and, and they, you know, you might have been a skiffle group, mm -hmm. and, right. and and that's very interesting. By the way, Billy Bragg has just is just about to publish a book about skiffle, which was very yeah. important. Huh. Skiffle was very important Lonnie in that Dunnigan? time. Donnegan, Donnegan, Donnie Donnegan, Donnegan, right. And he had also influenced a, a lot of the America, a, an awareness of American folk music, and you know the the, the blues and so on. And I think generally Europe was more aware of this sort of traditional black music. Mm -hmm. So that whereas it, you know, the, the 
a lot of the uh, the pop music was coming out of Bill buildings and things, but a lot of the English people were interested in Motown uh, and no, well later, no, later, no, no. but more into Big Bill Brunsy. No, and no even later, earlier it was acoustic. It was more sort of. Um, How and I mean, uh, no, it was um, who who Led was the Bell guy? Lead Belly, Johnson, John, Robert, yeah, Robert, Robert Johnson. Johnson. Yes, and it was that sort of early Lead Lead Belly, the Lightning blues Hopkins. thing, right? Uh, Lightning, yeah, Lightning, Lightning Hopkins. Hopkins. Yeah, it yeah. was it was about it was about acoustic yeah, blues, yeah, and right. it came out of folk music, Definitely. and there was a sort of folk yeah. music thing in England, which also, as it were, tied into the political times because. Folk music was very strong for the left wingers. It was very strong. There was a communist link, just as in America with things like Woody Guthrie and so on, mm -hmm. you know, and all those people. Mm -hmm. that, that there was that sort of, so there was that, uh, that folk, uh, traditional, mainly southern, uh, black yeah. music yeah. sort of link, which was very important. And then, as it were, it we, it was transferred then with things like Motown had a huge impact, uh, and sure. the Shirelles, the early. You know the early, some of those early girl groups with uh, produced by oh god, what's his name? Spectre. With Spectre, oh, the, the Spectre bands, yeah. the Crystals, and all those things with oh, the Spectres, yeah. and 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 the the songwriting from Bill Building. There was this explosion. A lot of it was, and it was all about singles. Yeah, definitely. All oh, about yeah. singles, and an album was just that your singles plus a few B sides. That was that was an album. Mm -hmm. And what was important about also this time of change around that mid '60s was that, you know, the Beatles were starting to put out. I missed the Beatles because they were just in Cambridge because they were just a pop band. Right. By the time I was involved with the with the Floyd, the Beatles had, had made you know were doing Rubber, Revolution and Rubber and, 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 Rubber Soul and yeah, things and like that. Concepts. And the concepts and the and, and the Rolling Stones were becoming more. So there was a whole sort of shift into the yeah. idea of doing albums of, uh, uh, as such and, yeah. and and that was a, a, a very important thing so that the beat the the the, st the the floyd we managed because we were so fashionable everybody wanted to sign the, the floyd we were able to get a very good deal with emi at the time a very good deal and we were able to insist on being able to do an album mm. and this was very unique it mm -hmm. was the first pop band to be given an album which wasn't a, a, a function of having hit singles. Mm -hmm. We were signed to do an album. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> that's why on that first album, Pipe at the Gates of Dawn, there's a track like Interstellar Overdrive, which is, you know, five or six minutes long yeah. um, and, and was so sort of very improvisational. There wasn't much in the way of lyrics or anything. It was a, it was a sort of more improvisation, improvisational music. And a, a lot of the people into the sort of that early people into the music were either into the folk music or into jazz um, mm -hmm. and into avant-garde jazz. So that's the time of Ornette Coleman. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I met my wife um, when she was coming over to England with her girlfriend who was Ornette Coleman's girlfriend. <laughs> and she'd been in, 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 in Paris with, with, with her friend. and. I, we met them. I met I met her in, in London, you know, and mm -hmm. but so Ornette Coleman, Yoko Ono, mm -hmm. um, these these are uh, this avant-garde thing. There was an avant-garde thing going on. So there was a lot of change in sure, avant-garde sure. films. A lot of the sort of French avant-garde films and the films, Italian yeah. films. It's yeah. a very important period, the sixties, yeah. and it, it it was a, a responding to these sort of changes, and so. 
that's why things like the uh, London Free School, which we're involved in, but also then the, the uh, UFO, the club, was very different. The UFO and the club that we, we, we founded with, with the Floyd and with the London Free School, there would be poets reading poetry when the band wasn't playing. There would be uh, films projected onto the walls, underground American films. Mm -hmm. We were getting stuff from people I in America. I even, uh, I even had, uh, I was at a party and uh, with friends uh, from the London Free School, and um, we'd had a, a tape from the Velvet Underground. It was cassette yeah. was going round, hmm. yeah. and someone knew John Cale, K John Cale. Um, who was a, a Welsh boy, but um, I mean, so therefore British in that sense. And I phoned him up and said, "Hey, hey, John Kell, this is you know I manage the Pink Floyd, and do you need a manager? <laughs> you know, because you know we're, we're banned. You know, do you need a manager? But also that time, that's at the same party, I met uh, the, 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 uh, we we had already met the the the, the band the, the band the Soft Machine. So one of them, I was talking yeah. to one of them, which was another. Now, the soft machine was very built on around um, uh, the, the name comes from a William Burroughs thing, uh, William Burroughs book, and William Burroughs and a lot of those sort of beats were in London, and because you could get legal drugs, mm -hmm. drugs were legal if you had a mm -hmm. doctor's prescription mm -hmm. back then, which was a very sensible thing. It's a shame we ever lost that. That was. But that also brought a lot of those sort of underground people sure. from America yeah. because they could come to, and they, so William Burroughs was there, and you know, then in, in that whole environment was sort of Yoko Ono and the poetry things with, um, who was the, the other guy doing the, the, the poetry, um, who was the other big poet, um, beat poet? Um, I want to say Jack Kerouac, but I'm No, wrong. Kerouac was the, the novelist, it was right. all that, but there was the poet, Allen Ginsberg. Ginsberg. Oh, yes. Ginsberg. And so there was a big thing there. And all these things were sort of mixed. It was yeah, extraordinary yeah. when you look back to it. It was an extraordinarily yeah. stimulating time. The changes in psychology, attitudes to psychology. Well, the, the audience, you know, became of age because the war yes. babies now were going to college and you didn't have to say, I want to hold your hand anymore. It was more to get into more serious subjects if you were going to hold the yes. attention. Yes, but I mean, absolutely, the London Free School, which was the, the thing around which we did the, it was as it were the, the community around which yeah. got me into the music business was, um, uh, we were all graduates, nearly all of us were graduates from Oxford and Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And we all had decent jobs, you know, because right. you could get a job then. I mean, that was no problem, getting yeah. a job. Yeah. And um, so the, the, there was this sort of, <coughs> <coughs> awareness of, of, of society, but also links with America. <coughs> a certain num num number, but the, very limited. You know, you could, there weren't cheap flights. It was, you know, very expensive mm. to, to fly to America. Um, but reports would come in. And, and the first gig that I saw the Floyd playing, the, when they were the Pink Floyd sound, was at a what's called a happening, which was put on by someone who was the man, who was the brother of, or was one of the managers of a New York band called the Fugs. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. uh, you, you 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 could, you, sure. you you remember then? So yeah. they were. So we would hear about them, and we only just got mutterings that there was stuff happening in in San Francisco and on the West Coast. Yeah. There were no records came in because imports records were very restricted. Yeah. Very hard to uh, 
you know, to, to, to get hold of. And um, so the, the, the gig that I saw the Floyd in first was a happening. And, and, and that was uh, meant that it was sort of, you know, p girls rolling in, in yeah, jelly right. and right. Uh, lights showing and, and, and poetry readings and projections yeah. on the walls and all this sort of yeah. thing. And, and so it was all, and this was also in a way we were doing what we thought they were doing in America. But what we subsequently discovered was that it was very different. And so the music of the Floyd was, we thought, was very going to be a bit like what they must be doing in America, because the American music we heard, apart from the pops, was jazz music, you yeah, know, and so avant-garde jazz. So, right. so the Floyd were, in a way, very influenced by that. And the first record that I was involved in before we managed the Floyd was a, 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 a band called AMM. Mm -hmm. and, and AMM put out a record which was called extract from a continuous performance and it was pure improvisation over two sides of an album mm -hmm. but also it sold about three copies <laughs> <laughs> and so at that point I realized that you know uh, if this was a label that we set up with it with this with Joe Boyd from Electra Records who, who, who was um, who was there as the young sort of man from Jack Holtzman yeah. and um, <clears throat> so we that that record sold so few copies that I then read the contract that we signed, because like all bad ma managers, I hadn't read the contract. <laughs> I just signed it, and I realised that we could never make enough money to pay for the recording. Yeah. Let alone pay for the uh, putting out the album. Let alone paying any money for marketing. Let alone paying any money <laughs> for for us to to live on. This was me my right. economics i was still working at the lse at this point uh -huh. so um it, it was a uh, it what, was in that contents that the floyd that we thought the floyd might be and we could want this avant-garde label yeah and what i wanted was an avant-garde band for the avant-garde yeah. label we wanted an avant-garde band we wanted an avant-garde jazz group an avant-garde classical music and avant-garde folk music right. don't know what those all were but we did have the avant-garde improvisational band yeah. of the so AMM. So what convinced you to then manage, actually manage Floyd? And did you ask um, them or did they ask you? No, well, uh, yes, no. Well, the story is that we had them, um, w I saw them at this happening, and then uh, and we'd already put out the um, AMM yeah. record, and right. so we were in, in, in process, and I realized we needed a pop band, so we wanted an avant-garde pop band. So I'd seen the Floyd, and, and I I wasn't a big pop music fan. I did happen to know Eric Clapton and things, but I wasn't a big pop. I liked blues and jazz and things, yeah. and um, I realised that this could be the pop and avant-garde pop band. So yeah. I went round. I found out who they were because I knew that the, the, the Bernard Stolman who put on the gig, and I and he told me where to find them. I went to find the band, knocked on the door with my. Um, with, with, with my with my uh, best friend Andrew, I knocked on the door and I said, you know, hello, Pete. I'm Pete Jen. I saw your your gig or worse that effect. And would you like to be on our label? And they said, no, well, no, no, no. We're just, you know, I can't cope with that. We're just about to go on holiday. Uh -huh. So they went on holiday. So I, I said, well, I'll be back. And I came back a couple of months later or, or six weeks later after they come back from their holiday. And I said. You know, I'm back. Um, you know, would you like to be on our label? Hmm. And they said, no, what we think we need is, is a manager. So I said, oh, okay, I'll be the manager. <laughs> oh, fine. 
<laughs> Such were decisions made. I mean, they didn't think very much about it I, because neither they didn't know what a manager was, but they knew from right. Brian Epstein right. Right. That uh, and the, uh, the, the bands had managers. You know, you knew that a band had a manager. Somehow that was part of, you know, you had instruments, you had, mm -hmm. a, you had a record deal and you had a manager. So uh, th th here's a guy who wants to be our manager. Okay, yeah, th they, they were willing for us to be their manager. So what did a manager do? Did you well, sign? Was there anything to sign? Or? Late, later on, but that later was on. all a big performance. But mm. the but the being a manager, we we thought, well, what do we do? You know, oh, I don't know. Well, what do the manager do? <laughs> oh, I know. They buy them some equipment. <laughs> so we bought them some equipment uh, because that's what a manager does. And then that night, it got stolen from the van. <laughs> so it was welcome to the music mm. business. So my partner had a little bit of money which we'd spent on this equipment. So then we had to get some more equipment on um, on uh, on higher purchase, so on 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 tick. So, you know, that's how the lack of knowledge. But in a sense, the lack of knowledge was what made it so interesting because we didn't have any idea of what the rules were. So the gigs we were doing, we started doing that that. Later on that month, we did a gig at the in, in where we had the London Free School, which was in Notting Hill area. We had a, a church hall. Now my father had been a vicar, and I knew that when you need to make, make a bit raise a bit of money, you put on a, what what was called a social. Mm -hmm. So oh, we'll put on a London Free School social. So we'll have a band, and people will come and pay at the door, and we'll make some money to help run the London Free School. Now, the guy who was key to all this was someone called John Hopkins, or Hoppy. He somehow had got hold of some uh, Americans who, were, I think, were draft dodging, and they were doing light shows. So they did some psychedelic lighting, so yeah. West Coast psychedelic lighting. Yeah. So that also helped us think about what we should be doing with the lighting. And the Floyd, you know, it was hitting the time. You know, so that it, it was... We didn't know how to advertise it. We didn't know how to promote it. We didn't have any radio play, but the place sold well. And then we did it again the next week. We said, oh, well, we'll do it again next week. So we did, and it sold, you know, could, people couldn't get in. And so then we had to move it to the um, the, 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 the club in, uh, which became the, the regular club in, in the UFO, which was in, um, on Tottenham Court Road in a basement in an Irish, an Irish dance hall hmm. and that was very important because the Irish dance hall was a place that we had it was big enough but it was also because it was for Irish people it, it had a license to sell yeah. booze right. and the license meant they had to stop selling booze at 11 so we were groovy you know we stayed up all, all night because we were underground so um, we would move in the UFO would move in after 11 o'clock so yeah. the landlord was delighted with it because he had a, another, you know, another another rent mm -hmm. and another sort of bits of money he was making on that. Right, but the but the law wasn't. It was against the law, but that's what. You no, were no, because we didn't have we didn't sell booze because we, oh, yeah, no. oh, right. <laughs> we, we were smoking dope. We were smoking dope and right. tea and coffee. Yeah. We weren't we weren't drinking booze. Right. So that was on, wasn't cool. <laughs> So right. that that was that was where it ha and happened. It just and it took off so fast. I can't. T it just absolutely hit the time and the place, and you know, in a way which was absolutely pure right. pure magic. Then did labels start looking for them? Oh yeah, every, I mean everybody knew instantly. By mm -hmm. this was in September. By 
Christmas time, they'd had us. We had a centre page, page spread in the biggest music paper in the in, in England, the Melody Maker, and, yeah, and they were being tipped by lots of these as being the ma the band for this 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 not the coming year for '67. And we put out a first single, which Joe Boy produced, and which we 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 put out. I think I don't know, may have come out early in '67, you know, mm -hmm. but or, or late '66, and, mm -hmm. and that did, you know, low in the charts, but was sort of charts. And and that was we'd recorded it with our agent had helped pay for recording it, so we'd taken it to EMI, and EMI gave him the the, the deal with a grant, uh, sorry, a big advance. And um, what wouldn't be considered a big advance now, but it was a big advance then, and uh, committed to an album. And we got, we got an engineer. We put us into Abbey Road, which was great, because that was where the Beatles recorded. And the, end, the producer we had who signed the band was someone called Norman Smith, who'd been an engineer on the early Beatles albums. Oh. And so it, that too was great. And so... You know, we were up there recording the um, Pipe at the Gates of Dawn, and down the corridor was the Beatles doing um, uh, Sergeant Pepper. Mm, and, uh, you know, we, we would take, but we were in awe of the Beatles, but we did get taken in to hear a, a mixing session on one day. And then we, you know, um, because Norman knew um, uh, Ma George Martin. George Martin. Right. So right. that was, you know, that we got us in to, to have a look, and oh, wow. Yeah. Eventually, you had to make a decision, though, because uh, there was the Sid Barrett issue. Oh, that was much later. Yeah. What, was that I mean, that was, was much later. I, all of a year later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, because everything was, was, was you know, was, was so moving so fast. Mm -hmm. um, Sid was going crazy. I mean, Sid didn't get to all the gigs on the tour. You know, sometimes we even did a gig where we took David O'List to play Sid's part on one of the one of the shows and you know you, they didn't know whether Sid was going to turn up or not so by the end of that year it was you know uh, we've got to do something about this now also there'd been Brian Wilson in America with the um, with, with uh, Beach, Boys. Beach Boys and you know so we'd seen what had happened there so what happened there was that the Beach Boys went on but Brian Wilson went on writing songs right so I thought, oh, well, maybe that's what we should do with Sid. That, oh. So that's why Dave came into the band, because we needed another guitar player who could be relied on to play and sing and do the arrangements and, you know, keep the name going. And that's when we also, because I couldn't see how the but they came to us and said, you can't see how we could do it without Sid, do you? Can you? And I said, you know, my partner and I, we said, no, we can't, because he writes the songs, he's the lead guitar player. You know, how, how can we do it without? And, and I'd seen the, as it were, the audition that Dave had done. He played this fantastic imitation Hendrix. He was a wonderful guitar player, and I'm still a friend. I'm still <coughs> very fond of Dave. And, and, and Roger was difficult. Roger started writing the odd song, but Roger was uh, very strong. He was, in a way, the business leader of the band. Sid was the, uh, was the, um, the, 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 the creative leader, Roger was the sort of business leader. Rick was the musician, Rick the keyboard player, he was mm. the musician. <coughs> Roger couldn't sing in tune, he couldn't play in tune. Um, his guitar was, his bass guitar was always uh, tuned by um, Rick. And then there was Dave, who was, who, who, who was as it were the junior 
in the band. You know, he was the the young lad, and um, and as time goes on, I I couldn't have foresee well, I didn't foresee how what a brilliant job Roger would do in, in the way he he built the band, and what a brilliant job Dave did in in providing the music and what they wrote and what they did together. And and I I think it's such a shame that they broke up, but you know they. It just got one of those things they couldn't stand each other anymore and mm -hmm. um, later on and that was way past my time but when Sid left I stayed with Sid and uh, the band went off to an, another management which shows what a great manager I was what a silly bastard and <laughs> but who was to know mm, yeah all right. All right. right could I ask you one quick artist management question yes then um, what do you think from your perspective, is the single most important aspect of the music industry that an artist manager needs to know? The most important thing that an artist manager artist needs, needs to know. To know. Yeah. I think you need to read your contracts and you need to understand them, especially with record companies, and you've got to realize that they're all crooks, the mm. record companies, and they're, you know, they're, they're very difficult. You've got to, you've got to understand You've got to, we've got to understand it through experience and, and, and in some painful ways. But be very wary of a signing contract. The most important thing is do not assign your works. Do not assign your works to a company, whether it's a publishing company or to a record company. That is not to say you shouldn't work with them, but you should work with them on a short-term basis mm -hmm. so that you are doing what's called a licensing deal rather than a signing deal. If you assign your works to a record company or a publisher, they own it. They own it forever. And you will never get them back. Or it's extremely unlikely you'll ever get them back. And so <coughs> you, 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 you've lost your independence. You belong to them. They own your records. And it's okay when you're going up and you're young and you're doing well. But when you're getting a bit older and you want to go out and you want them to keep promoting your records, they might decide they don't want to anymore. They may drop you and you've made this great record and they just drop it and you owe them now the money for making a record mm -hmm. and your, your, your record that you had, which was a hit, which is why they let you make your second or your third album, all that money will go off against you know the records. Be aware that if they give you money, they're going to take it back from you. Mm. and uh, be very, very cautious and very wary. And, um, you know, that, that I think is the most important thing. Understand what you're signing with if you're going with a big corporation. Mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, and if you don't understand it, don't sign it. Yeah. You know, whether it's an individual. Now, also, you have to be very careful about how you're going to tie things in with each other because they sort of, money flows on publishing is very different from the money flows on records and it's it's very difficult read some books there are some books um and it's a very difficult time because it's uh, everything's changing mm -hmm. we're in a, a, a time of extreme change and if you can keep hold of it and do it do it yourself that's what i recommend you do do it yourself work social media i don't know how to do it but i know that people can Work social media, build up your fan base, work with your fans, build around live and make your own recordings and, and, and so on. And, and be very wary of, of, of signing to people who are going to make, give you big hits because they probably aren't. But maybe they will, but always find a, you know, 
don't assign your copyrights. Yeah. Don't okay. assign your copyrights. Yeah. License them. Well, so you uh, still own them. Right. Well said. Yes. Yes, we appreciate that. So you mentioned reading a book, good books. So you're going to get a copy of our book, Managing Your Van, <coughs> sixth right. edition. And um, hopefully you'll take a look at that. You'll actually page through and say, this is actually a lie. Yeah. With that, I tried yeah. to do my Peter Yeah, Chan yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It wasn't that good. So well, it was, it was better than my American. There <laughs> 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 we go. We, we have to thank you. I wish who, we could Who's like the guy who wrote the, 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 the sort of the, the American Bible for sort of... Don Passman. Don Passman. It's a very good book. Mm -hmm. It's right. very, I don't think he can cope with, with digital. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I haven't read his stuff on that, but he, I doubt if he can. I mean, mm -hmm. he's not, I don't see him around on the scene talking about digital music. Yeah. Interesting. I think yeah. he he's gives you that traditional view of it, but you have to right. really think and check, check out what's the hell's happening in the digital world. And sure. on the whole, hold your rights. Work through with, you know, agents or with, with you know, um, what are they called? Aggregators and mm. things like that. Sure. Struggle, but hold your rights because, you know, it, it, when you start, you're liable to get a very, very not enough money to live on, and you're going to be trapped. And yeah. you know, it, 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 it's very hard to do a, a sensible deal, um, either for you or for the as the seller or for the buyer, because mm. neither of you know what the where you are until you <laughs> develop. So. As far as you can do it yourself, do it yourself, you know. And um, you know, if you can, you know, practice in your garage or you know, borrow a car or find some people to take you to gigs and but build an audience, build a relationship with audience, learn how to work an audience, learn how to work a show, learn how to accept uh, criticism of what works and what doesn't work in your show, whether it's from your so-called manager or from fans or your sound man, you know be open don't be don't be arrogant but be determined by all means be determined and convince what you want to do but don't be arrogant listen to what people have to say and if people whom you know like what you do tell you that that was a gig then that was probably a gig <laughs> and, and learn from what was why was it a gig don't get upset ask them why was it a gig what was about it because in some ways they'll start telling you, and that I think as a manager is one of the best things you can do is have that is 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 for the 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 band or the artist to have confidence that you're a fan, but to respect your opinions that you are a fan, but you've also you're a member of the audience, yeah. and that your criticism, if it's well me meant, because you know it's well meant because they're working with you, is criticism to be listened to. You don't have to agree to it, but take it on board. Well, that's right. We thanks for coming on board with us. Yeah. On this radio show, Peter Jenner. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I wish you were 20 so we could be done. Instead, you're like at least 50. So there's so much more we didn't cover. Yes. So, but we will in the future. We got to get you back. Well, you have to get me before I keel over. You know. <laughs> right, uh, so in the next 28 years. So uh, Zach Smith, thank you for listening. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Esteban Marconi, thank you for yes, being here. Thank you. Thank and, you. And thank me for being here. I appreciate My being here. My co-host. Yes, yeah. always here. And at the end of every show, we don't say hello. Instead, we say adios. I can't remember when you looked at me and cried. 